right, so before I get started, I'm going to make sure that this thing is working. All right, it's working. Um, so thank you all for coming here tonight. Um, before I get started, I just have three reasons to apologize to you all. The first is, as Dan already alluded to, I'm a little bit nervous, right? I'm coming back to the University of Richmond, having been a graduate here for, in, in 1993, um, and I'm a little bit more nervous because my mentor is here. When I showed up uh, on campus, I had my life figured out. I was going to do my time at the University of Richmond, I was going to go to Washington, D.C., and I was going to lead a life in politics. I was absolutely certain of that. And then I met Dan Palazzolo. And, and he was, like, after interacting with him and having classes with him and after we did a research project together, in fact, when his first daughter was born, he was not at his daughter's side, but rather he was with me at a conference because she was born prematurely. Uh, she's now a 26-year-old healthy woman who's living in Richmond, so I uh, made up for that. Um, and, and Dan taught me what it was, showed me what it was like to not only be a good scholar, but a, a good person. Um, and I just feel so blessed that I came to the University of Richmond so that I could have those types of really personal experiences. And, and it means so much to me to have him invite me here and, and to introduce me today. And, and it's not just Dan that makes me nervous, but also I have two other former teachers, three other former teachers sitting in the audience. Right, so Dr. West has come back to campus. Um, and then Dr. Dance, who taught me African-American literature and black women writers. And then Mrs. Hobgood, who taught me political communication. Um, are all here, and so I'm, I'm extra nervous. I have four former teachers in, in the audience, and as long as I'm naming people, right, one of my dearest friends from my time um, at the University of Richmond is Kay Kostenbader, uh, who flew up from Florida to share this weekend with me. So I'm thrilled to be here, so I'm nervous, so forgive me for that. Uh, the second reason I'm going to apologize to you all is, is the project that you're going to see today is a project that's in progress. Um, usually when I get the opportunity to speak to public audiences, I'll present some of my research work or work that's already been published or, or maybe even a book. But I want to take this opportunity in particular to show you a work in progress, in part because I'm, it's what I'm thinking about right now. And so I'm hopeful that the questions that you ask, the things that you react to, will help me in developing this project even more. So tonight, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. And I'll just bear with you, or bear with me, in that I'm not going to have as many answers as that I wish that I could have. Um, so I would just ask for your uh, forgiveness on that. And, and the third reason I'm going to ask for your forgiveness tonight is that I'm going to talk about politics. <laughs> right? I would say that anywhere I'm speaking in the United States, but in particular to a crowd in Virginia who just endured an off-off year election. You don't even get a break during the odd number years in Virginia. <laughs> But yet you showed up tonight, and so I'm just thrilled that you're here. And so I apologize for talking about politics. And it's even worse because I'm going to talk about Congress. And as you'll see here shortly, Congress isn't a beloved institution. Um, so let's go ahead, with those apologies out of the way, let's go ahead and get started. So the title of my talk is, is Contempt in Congress, the Decline of Statesmanship in the U.S. Senate. I'm going to be spending a lot of time talking about, particularly the U.S. Senate, a lot of the things that I'll say have some bearing on the House of Representatives, and I'm happy to entertain questions about it, but most of it's going to be about the, the Senate. And the Senate is a, is a unique institution, right? So the House of Representatives only requires a majority vote. So the majority party, even if it has the majority by a seat or two, can pretty much get its, its will done. But the Senate is different, right? Because of the rules of the filibuster, uh, it takes 60 votes to get a lot of things done. It's rare that a party has 60 votes by itself. And so for a lot of things to happen in the Senate, it requires some uh, consultation with the other side. It, it requires talking across the aisle. And so a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today is, is the building of bipartisanship, or the or breaking down of bipartisanship um, in the Senate. 
But first, let, let's talk about Congress as a whole. Right? So if we ask the American public, do you approve or disapprove of how Congress is handling its job? So someone throw out a number. What percentage of the American public approves of the way that Congress is doing its job? All right, so I heard lots of low numbers, right? So it's actually 25%, right, in the latest poll. This is from uh, October, so last month. And it's on a bit of an upswing. Um, so if we look across time, right, there are times when it's been as low as single digits. Right? So the fact that it's 25, what I think you have happening over the last couple of months is that with the House finally doing some stuff on impeachment, some Democrats are now approving of Congress in a way that they weren't before. So I, th I think that's, I think that's what, what's, what's going on here. But there are lots of ways that I can uh, show you the unpopularity of Congress. So I'm going to ask another audience participation question. So what's the first word that comes to mind when I say Congress? Gridlock. <laughs> All right, so I'm hearing gridlock, obstruction. So in a survey that was done, these were the answers that the American public gave. <laughs> now you have to stare at that graphic for a pretty, right? So the bigger the word, the more that people say it, right? So useless and dysfunction, incompetence, ineffective. You have to stare at that a pretty long time before you come up with any positive words in the, in the cloud. There are two. <laughs> and let's take each of those in turn, right? So the first one is okay. So my suspicion is that some of the surveys that were given to people were asked of people that I normally spend my days with, right, students. And the way that any student starts an answer to any question is, well, okay, how about <laughs> incompetence or, or something else? And so my suspicion is okay comes from them just saying it as a filler word until they think of a word. Now the other word is serving. So my suspicion with serving is that they forgot the adjective that's supposed to go in front of that which is self. <laughs> so I'm not sure even the two positive words could count as words that should have been included. There's another way we can talk about congressional unpopularity, and that's that we can say, all right, would you, would you rather, do you like Congress more than this other thing? And so in this particular poll that was taken, they asked about lots of other things. The first other thing they asked about was head lice. So do you like Congress or do you like head lice? What do you think wins? <laughs> Head lice, 67%. <laughs> it's not just head lice that they prefer, but it's also Brussels sprouts, the country of France, traffic jams, root canals. <laughs> Isn't that awful? Root canals. Uh, replacement refs in the NFL. But lest you think there's nothing that they don't like uh, less than Congress, they actually like Congress more than they like lobbyists. They like Congress more than they like John Edwards. I can't help but laugh when I present that. They like uh, Congress more than the country of North Korea. So Congress, a bit of a comeback, right? And they like Congress more than they like Fidel Castro. In fairness, I should confess to you that this poll was done when Fidel Castro was still alive. My suspicion is that in death, he may be more popular than Congress today. <laughs> When we see these statistics and we laugh about Congress, it, it, it reflects nothing about what we thought about Congress in the middle part of the last century. Right? There was a time when, especially the Senate, we would call it the greatest deliberative body in the world. There was a great book that was written in 1950 called The Citadel, The Story of the U.S. Senate. In this book, William White, who'd spent a lot of time observing the Senate, wrote this. He said, most men here are alike, right? apologize for the gender exclusive word, but they were men at that time. Uh, are alike in the deep sense that they are Senate men, joined in a common pride in the meaning and traditions of their forum. 
To outside attack from any source, not excluding the White House, they will certainly turn a common face. And they are, and they are a, at the end members of the Senate even before they are members of political parties. Does that sound anything like the Senate we know today? Yeah, sadly not. There's still some vestiges, right, of this bipartisanship, of this idea of them being Senate men first, and we see it in some of the interpersonal relationships they have. So I want to tell you about two, uh, two members of the Senate in particular. So the person on your left is Thad Cochran. He was the first Republican represent, uh, elected from the state of Mississippi uh, since Reconstruction. Uh, he is the longest serving Republican from Mississippi in the history of the state. And then the guy on the right is a Democrat, Pat Leahy, uh, from Vermont, right? Long serving Democrat, one of the two or three senators that have served the longest in the institution. They had a great relationship. In fact, when uh, Thad Cochran, who has since died, um, when he died, like uh, Pat Leahy was the one who gave um, the uh, uh, address at his funeral. So when, um, when Thad Cochran had announced his retirement from the Senate, he was resigning from the Senate because of ill health, uh, Pat Leahy had this to say about him. He said, he's the best friend I ever had in the Senate. I know he'll keep his word to me, and he knows I'll keep my word to him. Unfortunately, some in both parties are forgetting that. And Thad Cochran, in turn, said, we fought side by side with each other, sometimes face to face uh, against each other, but always with friendship and respect. No matter the issue, we would walk out of the Senate with our arms around each other. Um, right? It's a beautiful relationship that the two of them had. And it's not just them. Right? We know of other people who've had really close relationships across the aisle. Of course, there was Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch. Right? So Ted Kennedy, the liberal lion of the Senate, and Orrin Hatch, one of the most conservative members from Utah. In fact, their relationship was so strong that when Ted Kennedy gets married to Vicki Kennedy, uh, uh, his best man is Orrin Hatch, right? And Orrin Hatch speaks at Ted Kennedy's funeral as well. And then perhaps most, most famously, at least in the last 15 years or so, uh, we have Joe Lieberman and, and John McCain, right? So their relationship was so strong that Joe Lieberman, of sorts, even leaves his party. I mean, he certainly does. Uh, in 2008, when he goes to the Republican convention and places in nomination John McCain's name, to be the Republican nominee uh, for president. <clears throat> um, and it reminds me, right, these, these bipartisan political marriages that exist, it reminds me of an old poll question that, that, that was asked in 1958. They said, so if you had a daughter of marriageable age, would you prefer she marry a Democrat or a Republican, all other things being equal? So this question is asked in 1958. And the percentage of Republicans that say that they would prefer that she marry a Republican was 25%. And the percentage of Democrats said that, right, they would, 33% of them preferred that their, their daughter marry a, a Democrat. So this question was asked in 1958. So as partisanship is getting worse, a polling firm decides to ask this question again a little bit more recently. What do you think the numbers ha have happened since then? Yeah, so it's a little bit higher. In 2016. 60 and 63 percent. In fact, um, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but not that much to suggest to you that Republicans these days would rather have their, le their, their uh, daughter marry a lesbian than a Democrat, right? I mean, I'm not sure it's quite to that extent, but I suspect that it's close. 
And of course, the, 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 the partisanship that, that is raging in the Senate and the polarization has a consequence on the institution as, as a whole. So if we look at the number of filibusters that are occurring in the Senate, we see the number getting higher and higher. Right? It doesn't matter if it's uh, a, um, a Democratic Congress with a Democratic White House, which is indicative of those uh, blue bars, or if it's a Republican Senate and a Republican president, which is the red bars, or the purple bars, where there's a, a switch between the Senate majority and the, and the folks living in the White House. Right? There, there are more uh, uh, filibusters happening in the Senate these days. They're also having a harder time funding the government. So normally this is done in 13 separate appropriation bills uh, that fund the entire government. What we'd like to see in an ideally functioning Congress is there should be a lot of black circles indicating that those individual subcommittees are having the hearings, they're reporting bills, those bills are being passed by both chambers and they're being enacted into law. But as we see, the closer we get to the top, the worse it's getting. So they're doing a far worse job than they were before. And I think what's particularly difficult for, for senators is that the, the score for the Senate is even worse than it is for the House. Right? So the Senate is, is doing a worse job of passing these bills uh, than the House. And of course, when, when the Senate um, and the House don't get together and pass these appropriation bills, we have things like shutdowns, which means that people can't go to, to the, some of the monuments and in Washington, D.C. during a government shutdown, our national park systems close. Sometimes it affects uh, TSA. It also means we're passing fewer bills. So granted, we're now in the 116th Congress, right, the last bar on the right-hand side, and they're only at 66 right now. Right? We're still in the first year, so it could, we could get a huge comeback in, in 2020 so that uh, they pass a few more bills. But nonetheless, it's likely to be one of the least productive uh, Congresses um, in, in, in history. And so we no longer have the Senate as William White described it, but rather we have the Senate as described by Stephen Smith in, in a book called The Senate Syndrome. In this book, just published a couple of years ago, Stephen Smith says, a procedural arms race takes place as partisan moves and counter moves play out over time. Adherence to tradition, constitutional design and fairness are questioned. Advocates for bipartisanship, for more sensible legislators, for the defeat of all incumbents, and for procedural reform compete for attention. Right? So it's become popular to talk about the dysfunction happening inside uh, the Congress and in, in particular the Senate. There have been other books that have been written. So this one uh, by a co-author of mine on a Congress textbook. So he says, The Parties Versus the People, How to Turn Republicans and Democrats into Americans. Another book, uh, The Party is Over by Mike Lofgren. I particularly like the subtitle. I'll read it for you all in case you can't read it in the back. How Republicans went crazy, Democrats became useless, and the middle class got shafted. <laughs> right? And I've even contributed a little bit to this uh, literature. Right? So the, the book that's for sale out in the hallway is called The Gingrich Senators. In this book, I argue how it's the politics that Newt Gingrich practiced in the House and how uh, the people that served with Newt Gingrich in the House and then moved to the Senate transformed the way that the Senate operates as an institution. Right? So it's, it's not just occurring in the House, but it's also occurring in the Senate. And I, I tried to write this book in a way that was fair to all the participants, right? Like, so I wanted that if Newt Gingrich or the typical Gingrich senators in my mind are like Tom Coburn and Rick Santorum, right? George Allen, one of your former senators, was a Gingrich senator because he served in the House before moving to the Senate. I wanted to be fair to them. And so I, I was always a little bit worried about how the book might be uh, received. And, and just from a, a fluke accident, uh, one of my former students who helped me out with this book, his mom was working at a bookshop, and the bookshop was hosting Newt Gingrich. And so before Newt Gingrich started signing books, my former student 
former student's mom had an opportunity to talk to him and said, hey, have you ever heard of, of, of this Gingrich Center's book? And, and she said, and, and Newt said, yeah, I have heard of it. And she said, before he offered his opinion, my son helped work on that book, she said. <laughs> and so Newt Gingrich uh, says, you want to know what? I think the, the author is, is, is pretty much on track. He says, I think that the author gives me too much credit. And so to this day, I think I'm the only person in America to whom Newt Gingrich thinks gave him too much credit. <laughs> so Newt Gingrich takes one of his books, he hands it to the, to the mom, and the mom has, uh, has him sign it over to me, and this is my student uh, handing me the book. And in, in the inscription he says, to Sean Theriel, and hopeful, uh, hopefully uh, will lead to a solution-oriented Senate. Your fan, Newt. And I'll just tell one other story, right? I'll go back a slide, if I can. Uh-oh. Maybe I broke it. Oh, there's a note here. Oh, it's want, it, it wants to install an update. <laughs> I'll say, remind me later. <laughs> right, so the student, right, there's no reason you, you, you would know him, but you know of him. So he was one of the people that was practicing with the Republican baseball team when someone went up to Washington, D.C. And so he was actually shot in the calf, right? So he is one of those that was wounded. I'm happy to say that, right, he's fully recovered, he's running these days and everything like that. But the story means extra, is extra special to me now as a consequence of what his mom and what he did for me. Uh, he's now back in Houston uh, going, uh, getting his MBA at Rice. So in the book, uh, The Gingrich Centers, I talk about two different aspects. Right? There's the aspect of party polarization, and then there's this other thing, I think, that's happening inside the Senate. And we in political science don't have a really good idea of what that other thing is, but we think that it's ultimately more meaningful. And so before I start talking about that other thing, I first want to talk just a minute about party polarization. So this is how much the Senate has polarized. The line running between, uh, in the middle of each of the regions is the average ideology score. Right, so they take all of the votes and they figure out voting and, and they say the average Democrat is there and it's changed a little bit over time. Right, and the average Republican used to be down there and, and, and it's grown more conservative, more off to the right hand side. So that the, the, the Democrats have gone from an institution filled with people like uh, Dianne Feinstein, who we now regard as one of the more moderate senators serving in the Senate, to someone like Patty Murray, who we think of as being a, a bit more liberal. Uh, than, than Dan Feinstein. The Republican Party has gone from someone like Shelley Moore Capito, your neighbor just over in West Virginia, to someone like John Cornyn, right, the senior senator in the, in the state of Texas. Right, so that's party polarization. It's this other thing that I want to get at more, and, and I started thinking about it a lot when Evan Bayh, senator from Indiana, announces his retirement. This is in 2010. And he says, for some time I've had a growing conviction that Congress is not operating as it should. There is much too much partisanship and not enough progress, too much narrow ideology and not enough practical problem solving, even at a time of enormous national challenge, the people's business is not getting done. And right, it's those words in bold that were piquing my, my, my attention and, and reflection. And is it really the fact that too much partisanship equals not enough progress? Haven't we always had really conservative people serving in the Senate and really liberal people? Right? Is it really the, the, the partisanship that's driving this? Is it really the fact that too much narrow ideology equals not enough practical problem solving? This is the heart of my current research question. Right? Are these two things highly correlated or are they two different things? And if they're two different things, shouldn't we begin to understand what that other dimension is? Right? To think of it a different way. Should we think of polarization and, and right, the social fabric as being on the same, are they the same thing? Should we, should we measure them in the same sorts of way?
right? I want to talk about these things going in the same direction. So instead of talking about social fabric, I'm going to talk about contempt, right? Is polarization, right? Voting conservatively in hatred and voting liberally in hatred, do those things go together? Or do they exist along uh, two separate uh, continuums, right? Should we be separating them and trying to get measures of them independently? To put it a little bit more uh, cheeky, if you will, right? Are we talking about the flip sides of the same coin or are we talking about two different coins? So I think that we're talking about two different coins. We know a whole lot about the quarter, right? We know a whole lot about party polarization. It's the second dimension of social fabric, contempt. Uh, that's what I want to try and get at. So social fabric or right contempt is going to be the dimension that we're going to spend a whole lot of time uh, thinking about uh, in the next half hour or so. I can't help but have this project be influenced by where I, I'm from, right? So what state do I live in? Texas. Texas, right? Our senior senator is John Cornyn, right? Up until this last year, John Cornyn was the second ranking Republican. He was the majority whip in the Senate, pretty powerful position, very conservative guy, but very much Republican establishment, right? You could imagine him in a particular meeting with Barack Obama and Susan Collins trying to come up with some solution so the government doesn't have to shut down or, or some type of public policy problem that needs to be addressed. Um, and uh, then who is my other senator? Ted Cruz, right? The junior senator from Texas is Ted Cruz, right? You might know Ted Cruz from his fake filibuster that he did right up in the funny, right? So here he is speaking at 3.27 p.m. Uh, and here he is at 8.05, still at the, at the podium. Here he is at 5.21 the next morning, right? It's sometime between those two different pictures that he's reading green eggs and ham to his daughters as they go to sleep in, in, in Houston, right? And here he is the next morning at noon, right? He has a much different relationship with other senators. He has a much different relationship with the legislative process. It's a much different relationship with the institution of the Senate than John Cornyn does. In, in, and it's not just me that thinks this, right? Even political commentators uh, think this, right? So in the bubble it says, uh, Senator Cruz heads off to another day of mature, responsible legislating by putting a cannonball in his briefcase, right? I like to think of, right, he may be putting a cannonball in his briefcase, or John Corn is putting a legal pad and a pen, trying to figure out a solution, trying to get people on the same page of something, right? It's not just me and political commentators that think this, it's also the people serving with Ted Cruz. So uh, Al Franken says, here's the thing you have to understand about Ted Cruz. I like Ted Cruz more than most of my other colleagues like Ted Cruz, and I hate Ted Cruz. <laughs> right? It's not just Al Franken, but it's also Lindsey Graham, someone from his own party, who says, if you killed Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate and the trial was in the Senate, nobody would convict you. But yet, when you look at Ted Cruz and John Cornyn's voting record, it's, it's largely the same, right? So I can't pick up a difference in the way that they behave by looking at the roll call voting histories, right? 93% of the time, they're casting a vote in the exact same direction. 7% of the time, they disagree. And you might think that 7% of the time that they're disagreeing, it's because Ted Cruz is one or, two, one or two or three people who are voting against everyone else or something like that. But when they disagree, right, they're disagreeing with Sanders in different amounts. And it's Ted Cruz that agrees with Bernie Sanders more than John Cornyn, right? So w when they disagree, even still, uh, you're not getting much of an ideological uh, difference between them. Now, it could be that, that Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders have, have been known to going on speaking tours with each other. So here they are on CNN in 2017 where they're debating tax policy. But I th think that there's another dimension going on here. So the Senate had been 
operating as it was, uh, and, and this is right after the 2012 election. And, and Al Franken uh, was pretty frustrated with the way that the Senate was operating. And he thought back to his second grade classroom. In, in, in the second grade classroom, uh, Al Franken was a really popular kid, and then his biggest enemy in the world was also in the classroom, and he was a pretty popular kid. And so by, after a couple months in this classroom, there was Team Franken, and then there was Team Other Kid. And, and the second grade teacher had just had it. She's like, this is, right, we can't have a productive classroom environment if we have two separate teams. They, they can't even agree to be in the same room with each other. And Al Franken said, uh, and the second grade teacher uh, had come up with a solution. And so the teacher said, we're going to do this thing. And, and lo and behold, when they did this thing, the class kind of got together a little bit. And Al Franken said, if it's good enough for my second grade teacher, it's good enough for the Senate. And so he says, I'm going to try and bring it to the Senate. But the Senate is as it, as it was, and so Al Franken said, I'm going to ask a Republican to co-sponsor the idea with me. So he talked to Mike Johans, a co-sponsor, Republican from Nebraska, who later serves in the Bush administration. And, and Mike Johans says, I love this idea. It's great. Let's do it. So they send out a dear colleague letter to all the senators, and they say, let's have a secret Santa where everyone in the Senate just comes together and see if we can just get along as human beings. We can talk about our relationships, our kids, our, our holiday plans. But of course, this is only going to work if people show up. So when they send out the invitation and they decide to have the secret Santa, these are the folks that come and don't come. Right? So Republicans, 22 of them come, 25 of them don't come. Democrats, 40 of them come, and 13 of them don't come. Now, if these two things existed on the same dimension, we had expected it's the extreme liberals who wouldn't show up and the extreme conservatives, right? If these things were along the same dimension, it's only the moderates that would show up. Uh, but lo and behold, when we look at the ideology scores of who's showing up and who's not, there's very little difference between them, which leads me to believe that, indeed, there are two different dimensions happening, right? You can still be a really strong conservative or a really strong liberal and like the people you're with and treat them well. Right? There's nothing about being an extreme ideological person that would suggest that you have to necessarily hate the other side. So this is what I'm trying to investigate. Right? I'm trying to investigate the social fabric of the Senate. And is it, in fact, the social fabric of the Senate that is coming down that is creating uh, so many of these problems? But I'm a social scientist. Right? So I like the stories of the Secret Santa. I like the cartoon of, of Ted Cruz heading off to do work. But at the end of the day, I want a bunch of zeros and ones. I want to be able to look at systematic behavior occurring across time to see if we can measure a breakdown in the way that people are relating in the Senate. Right? It would be great if I could pass out a survey and say, do you think the other side is full of jerks or not? But who's going to answer that survey? So what I'm going to attempt to do over the next 10 or 15 minutes is suggest to you some of the data that I'm going to gather to try and see if we can get at this idea of a social fabric. But first, I'm going to try to provide you with some data that we can use as a dependent variable, uh, suggesting um, if the, the effectiveness which with the Senate is doing its job and individual senators are doing their job. So the first piece of data I'm going to look at uh, right, involves roll call votes. Uh, of course, this audience knows that there are two parties in the Senate. There's Democrats and Republicans. Um, and they can either vote yes and no on roll call votes. So if a majority of Democrats vote yes and a majority of Republicans vote no, we would call that a party difference vote. And it doesn't matter who votes yes and who votes no. If it's the opposite, it's still a party difference vote. Political scientists are really good at analyzing these votes because they show party separation. We can see when the parties separate, to what extent do individual senators line up with their party versus the other party. It gives us a measure of how much they're willing to cross the aisle. And so we know the, these votes a lot. 
but the votes we never analyze is when they vote together. So if you have a majority of Democrats voting with a majority of Republicans, I'm going to call that a party compromise vote. And it seems to me if you're on that side, then that's going to tell me the extent to which you're contributing to the institution functioning properly. And it doesn't matter if it's yes and trying to pass a poll policy or no trying to kill some poison pill on a bill that would otherwise pass. That's still going to be a party compromise vote. So we're going to look at party compromise votes uh, across time. And, uh, that's the, the first measure. And uh, if we go back to the 91st Congress, this is the early 1970s, about 64% of the votes that they were taking in the Senate were party compromise measures. Now, do you think that number has gone down over time or gone up? Down, because you know something about the Senate and you know something about displaying graphics and you know there's not a whole lot of room <laughs> on the top part of that slide. Indeed, it has gone down. Right over time. So it passes the first smell test. Let's see if it passes the second smell test. So the senators that are high scoring on these priority compromise votes, do we think of them as being institutionalists that are willing to help out the institution? Or do we think of them as problem creators? Well, let's, so let's see who's at the high end and the low end of the scale. So Bernie Sanders is at the low end. Is he a problem creator in the Senate? Absolutely. You don't have to talk to too many senators to find out that he's not about uh, solving problems, at least in the Senate. And then the person on the high end is Pat Roberts, right? Someone that you might not even be familiar with. He's a long-serving chair of the Ag Committee. He's from Kansas. Unfortunately for us, he's announced his retirement, so he's not going to run for re-election in 2020. But he's very much the kind of person that we think of when we think of a problem solver in the Senate. So it passes the second smell test. So I think we might be onto something here. Ted Cruz, is he towards Bernie Sanders or is he towards Pat Roberts? Of course, he's towards uh, Bernie Sanders, and John Cornyn, right, one of the problem solvers. So it passes uh, this test, at least initially. The second piece of data we're going to look at is legislative effectiveness scores. This comes out of a group just down the road at UVA and then Vanderbilt. What they do is they look at every single senator's bills and they see how far they get in the process. And they, if someone passes lots of bills and they're important bills, then they're called an effective senator. If they don't, then they're called an ineffective senator. So at the high end is uh, Chuck Grassley from Iowa, long-serving chair of, of finance and judiciary uh, in, in the Senate. That rings true with what we think. At the low end is a little bit puzzling to me. It's Ben Sass from Nebraska. We don't think much about him. He's a freshman or a young-serving member uh, in his first term. And so it could just be that he hasn't quite figured out how to get a bill passed yet. But it passes that test. Let's see where uh, Ted Cruz is, right? So he's just about at the midpoint. And then John Cornyn, number four. So again, I think there's enough face validity to consider this piece of data. The third piece we're going to look at is bipartisan co-sponsorship index. Right, so this is the extent to which a senator is willing to cross the aisle and co-sponsor a bill from the other side. High end is Susan Collins, absolutely a problem solver, according to her reputation in the Senate. At the low end, again, is Bernie Sanders. Right, so here is uh, Ted Cruz. He's about three quarters the way through the distribution. And John Cornyn, again, in the top third. And last, uh, looking at roll calls and amendments. So it used to be fashionable to kill a bill by speaking it to death like Ted Cruz tried to do. Another way you can do it is just by offering an endless amount of amendments. In the Senate, not only can you offer an amendment, but then you can demand a roll call vote on it. Roll calls in the Senate can take up to a half hour long. So if we look at uh, the number of amendments that are being offered, in the 103rd Congress, which was a Democratic Congress, Republicans were offering about seven amendments per senator. Democrats were only offering about half as many. The uh, 104th Congress, Republicans become majority, and the behavior absolutely switches. And we see this switch play out across time. 
And so with a good deal of certainty, at least until the 112th Congress, we know that the minority party is offering twice as many amendments, indicating they're trying to kill bills. Right? Of course, some amendments are, are truly good amendments and they're trying to move the process along, but not all of them. And so the ones that are offering 30 and 40 amendments are the, the problem solvers. The problem with, or the problem creators. The problem with this measure is that in the 113th Congress, or 112th Congress, you see it's lower there, and then the 113th Congress, um, Harry Reid uh, changes the rules. And so he starts filling the amendment tree, which just is a procedural way where the majority leader can maintain control of the Senate. And so this measure stops losing some of its power in the 112th Congress. So now, if you were students in my class, I would ask you to draw a line in your notes. I just want to present some data to you that have nothing to do with my talk, only because it turns out that we have some senators running for president. And I thought you might like to see where they score on these dimensions. So those are the folks who are running in the Democratic primary. Uh, those are our three measures. Um, the uh, one that scores the lowest is Bernie Sanders, right? 97th rank among all senators. And then, right, there's a clump of them, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and Kirsten Gillibrand, who's dropped out, and then Cory Booker. And then finally, the two most effective senators, according at least to these measures, are uh, Amy Klobuchar and Michael Bennett. Right? Mike Bennett hasn't been on a debate stage since the first debate. So uh, now, right, uh, I'll ask you to draw another line, and we'll now consider some of the data related to social fabric. Uh, the first uh, data piece that I'm going to look at are conference committees. So conference committees are this idea when the House passes a version of bill, Senate passes a different version, they get together, they stay in the same room, and they negotiate a difference. That's the way that, that reconciliation between bills used to happen, right? It looks something like this. So you have Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, you have Democrats and Republicans in the House, they'd all be in the same room and they would try and figure out some type of solution. Well, what's happened to the use of conference committees over time? You won't be surprised uh, that they're a lot less frequent than they used to be, right? So in the last few Congresses, they haven't even been 10 of these conference committees, where if we go back to the mid-1990s, there was more than 60 of them. The second piece of evidence I'm going to look at are CODELs. These are trips that members of Congress take with um, uh, uh, abroad, right? And so they'll go to Afghanistan, they'll talk to the troops, or they'll go to Israel and try and figure out the geopolitical situations happening in the Middle East, or they'll go to Germany to talk to some of our allies. So it turns out that sometimes uh, folks travel with just one party. So here are a bunch of Republicans who are in, at the King David Hotel in Jerusalem. Sometimes they'll travel in bipartisan groups, right? So this is one of John McCain's famous ones where he has Joe Lieberman, right, senators from both sides of the aisle that are traveling with them. And then some senators just simply travel alone. No one's laughing. All right. <laughs> so we can look at CODAL data. The problem is, is that the Senate doesn't like to report these things, and so I'm having to dig, I shouldn't say I, uh, a team of undergraduate researchers are <laughs> at the University of Texas right now while I'm enjoying my nice weekend in Richmond, are digging through the Senate record to try and figure out all of these trips that senators are taking with each other. Another thing we can look at is campaign donations. It used to be in the Senate that if Dan and I were in opposite parties uh, and we were both serving in the Senate, that I would never give money to the person running against him, even though his opponent is on the same political team as I am, because I would know that 90% of the time Dan is going to win his election. And I want to make sure that, that I'm not poisoning the well between us so that when he's reelected, we can solve problems again. But if we look at the amount of money that's now being contributed by senators from the opposite party to their uh, opponents, it's gone up pretty drastically, right? Even in the uh, 2018 and 2016. And it's both parties that are doing this, right? It's not just isolated to one party at all. We can also look at press events. 
So there's a room that you have to reserve in the Senate, um, and they have to fill out paperwork, who's gonna show up, and, and they take photos, and right, these are here we hear the sound bites. So uh, sometimes they're bipartisan, right? So here you have uh, Rand Paul, who's uh, Republican, with Ron Wyden from Wyoming, and then Pat Leahy from Vermont, and sometimes just one party shows up. And lo and behold, over time, uh, the number of press conferences that include people from both parties is getting shorter and shorter. That's the black portion of each of those bars. And it's, again, it's both parties, but this trend is dominated by Democrats. So Democrats are increasingly having press conferences where just Democratic senators are showing up. Another piece of data we can look at are tributes and farewells. So when a senator announces that they're leaving, frequently they'll give a speech, like Jeff Flake did where he announces that he's not going to run for re-election. After he's done with his speech, other folks in the chamber will offer comments as well. Right? So this happens to be the senator from the same state, Arizona, John Kyle, who's giving a tribute to him. So again, as I'm standing up here presenting this data, there are researchers at the University of Texas that are coding these data. The first thing that we know is the number of tributes is going down, at least as, much as, as far as they've gotten at this point. So the 105th Congress, there used to be about 21 senators on average that would give a tribute. It's now down to about 13 senators that are giving a tribute. And the, the larger problem, I think, of this is that fewer and fewer are coming from the opposite side. So it used to be about half of them were from a senator from the opposite side, and now it's more than two-thirds that are coming from the, the party of the person who is retiring. Another piece of data we're looking at is ceremonial swearing-in photos. So on the first day of a Congress, uh, the Speaker of the House or the, the uh, Vice President will be in one of these stage photos, right? The hand resting on the Bible, the hand up, and, and right, they actually take the oath of office, all of them together on the floor. But people like these individual photos, and so the presiding officer of the chamber will go across. Part of, the, part of the reason I'm gathering these data is because I just think it, right, it reveals some great photos. Right, so here's one of Mitt Romney and Mike Pence. Right, that's normal. But what happens if you're a Democrat and you've been elected? Do you really want to be in a photo with Mike Pence? So right, we're looking at these data. Right, some of these photos are just priceless. Right, Joe Biden, maybe you've seen these back when he was vice president. Right, a little bit squeamishness happening. <laughs> so I actually thought of this idea uh, from one of my former students. So one of my former students is now a member of Congress. Right? So he represents the northeast corner of Texas. He represents the seat uh, vacated by Jeb Henserling. He's a Republican uh, from Texas. He served in the Texas House before he was elected to the, to the U.S. Congress. And on, uh, when he was uh, sworn in, just this past January, uh, he had a photo uh, taken with the speaker. And so the Tea Party in his uh, district got a hold of this photo, and they started uh, criticizing him. And people were writing in on, on the Facebook post saying, it took Lance Gooden exactly one day to become a Pelosi Democrat in the U.S. Senate. Right? And so this, the chain was getting more venomous, as you can imagine, if you've ever read social comments on, on, on these sorts of things. And then about 10 or 12 comments down, someone noticed uh, right, that Nancy Pelosi seems to be holding hands with someone. And they said, well, who else is in that photo? And so then the true photo came to light. And so then uh, Lance had to say, look, my professor came all the way up from the University of Texas to, me, to see me being sworn in. Right, he studies Congress. I really wanted a photo of me with a speaker and my old Congress professor. So that was the way that he explained it. I, of course, had to apologize for creating a scandal on his very first day in elective office. 
Another piece of data that we're looking at is Seersucker Thursday, right? It used to be the uh, situation in the U.S. Capitol was such that uh, the Senate, was, or the, the Capitol was so hot that everyone would wear their seersucker suits during the summer. Um, and uh, here's a photo of them all in their seersucker suits, right in the Senate. And uh, right, it devastates me to tell you that even this is going down over time. <laughs> so you can't even wear a seersucker suit anymore in the Senate. And lo and behold, there are undergraduates right now at the University of Texas who are looking at the latest seersucker photos to try and figure out who's showing up. And then also the Secret Santa. So even though the Al Franken has had to resign from the Senate, uh, the, um, the uh, Secret Santa participation still continues. This is the last one that he attended, right, with Thad Cochran and, and uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia. And here's a nice bipartisan picture from the last Secret Santa uh, with Heidi Heitkamp and Rob Portman, a Democrat and a Republican. Uh, although Heidi Heitkamp uh, is no longer there. So I thought that I would bring this talk all the way forward to, uh, to impeachment, right? And I'm not going to say much about impeachment, um, except that we know that a critical part of it takes place in the Senate, um, right? This is the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When the President of the United States has tried, the Chief Justice shall preside. No person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. So in order to understand exactly what's happening, I think it's helpful for us to have a little bit of a historical context. So if we go back to 1972, this is uh, the, a graph of the uh, percentage, the proportion of Democratic vote that each of the uh, states gave to George McGovern in the election against uh, uh, Richard Nixon. So the state way over on the left is the most Democratic, and the state way over on the right is the least Democratic. Right? And now I'm going to show you one with the columns filled in with which party uh, is represented by that state in the Senate, right? And in 1972, there was literally no difference in the constituencies of Democratic senators and Republican senators. They came from, uh, right, it looks almost random, right? The, the most Democratic state in the country uh, elected one Democrat and one Republican. The most Republican state in the country elected two Democrats. If we fast forward, uh, oh, so if Richard Nixon were to have been voted out of the Senate, it only would have required all the Democratic senators and just a few of the most, uh, uh, of this Republican senators representing the most Democratic states. If we fast forward to 1998, this is the way that the parties start shaking out under the Bill Clinton impeachment. So for him to have been removed from office, it would have taken all the Democrat, oh, I'm sorry, all the Republican senators and then uh, just a few of the most conservative uh, states uh, who elected Democratic senators to vote uh, to remove him from office. So fast forward to Donald Trump, and this is the way the Senate looks today. Right, there are very few senators these days that are cross-pressured, doing what their parties want them to do and what their states want them to do. When those two things align, it's really hard for senators to exercise independent will. Right, and there's very few, right? So Susan Collins and Cory Gardner, right? I mean, Georgia and Maine, kind of Democratic states. Right? And then over here, poor Doug Jones right, is the one who's way over on the, on the, on the right-hand side. So for Donald Trump to be removed from office, it's going to require all the Democratic senators plus that many Republican senators. So what's the state that's right here in the middle? Right? What's the state that decides whether or not he stays in or out of office? It's the state of Mississippi. Can you imagine Cindy Hyde-Smith or Roger Wicker ever voting to remove Donald Trump from office? Well, so let's look at one more Democratic state to the, to the left. It's Alaska. Right? Maybe we can get to a point where we could imagine Lisa Murkowski, but we certainly can't get to a place where we could imagine Dan Sullivan voting to remove Trump. And then one state on the Republican side is Missouri. 
right? Josh Howley today is in the Senate because he rode the coattails of Donald Trump in the last election. And then uh, Roy Blunt, who is a member of the leadership. So in order for Donald Trump to remove from office, it's going to require 47 votes plus 20 Republicans. Um, and right now, at most, we have 15 Republicans that have indicated any type of a sense of even listening to the evidence in the Senate. Right? These are people who will say stuff like, I, I could be a juror in a potential trial, and so I'm not going to say anything else. Right? But the vast majority of the Republicans serving in the Senate today like, just won't hear of, of any of the evidence. Like, for them, it, the, the process was so flawed from the very beginning that the only thing that could be revealed is flawed evidence. Right, is, is what they're saying. So let's look at those 15 Republicans. Right, Back to the idea. So does partisanship line up with institutionalism, or are they the same dimension? So if they're the same dimension, then it should be the most moderate ones who are the ones who are speaking out. So oh, uh, here are where they line up on the, the 15 who've, who've indicated some semblance of listening uh, to the evidence. Here is a graph of all of the Republicans serving, Right, the most uh, moderate to the most conservative. And here's, uh, right, so the average ideology score is 0.49. And then the folks on the bottom are the ones who aren't going to listen to evidence, and the ones on the top are the ones who are going to listen to evidence. And their ideology scores are pretty similar. Right? So again, I think there's something there about institutionalism, social fabric, whatever contempt, whatever you want to call it, that I think could tell us something about how the Senate operates. These numbers are only correlated at 0.22, so there's a lot that can yet still be explained. So today, I hope I've told you uh, a little bit about what the social fabric is in the Senate. I hope I've given you some indications of how I'm going to measure it. Um, I hope I've uh, told you some of the consequences it has on the institution. And finally, I hope that I've told you a little bit about how I think it might play out uh, during the impeachment thing. The only thing that I would hope at this point is that when I'm done with the research project, you all promise to buy the book. <laughs> and with that, I'm open for questions. Thank you. Who's got questions? And is there, are there microphones? Or no? Okay. I'll repeat the question so everyone can hear. Yeah, right, and, and that's a really interesting question. So the question is, do, do we know anything about what they really think and what, what they think privately to what they say out in public? Um, and, and right, if you listen to the, the political commentators these days, you'll hear an entirely different story than the one that, that is being played out, at least in the zeros and ones and the way the Senate is behaving. Right, they'll say that right, there, there aren't that many senators that would stand up for, for kind of the antics of, of, of President Trump. But, but yet, we don't see many uh, cleavages that are, that are occurring inside the Republican Party. So I don't know how much faith to put in, in, in that type of reporting, right? Like, it could be people who are just trying to blow off steam, right? I don't doubt that reporters are hearing that, but senators certainly aren't acting on it at this point. Um, so for me to have much faith in it, um, I, I'd, I'd sure need to see more public actions that resonate with it before I would, I would put much faith in, in the words that, that you're hearing. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to be where it's stuck. 
No, that's and that's really interesting that, that you put on. Like I, I started thinking of this problem, right? We've all we've all all heard that, right? Like elect me because I can work across the aisle. I know how to get things done, right? It worries me though because increasingly you're hearing people not saying that. You're saying don't elect that person because they have friends on the other side. I can remember a district right outside of Austin that goes down into Houston. I remembered hearing this in like 2006 or 2008. And, and I was told, right, listening to the commercial, that I shouldn't vote for that person because another, the other party uh, president had appointed him to a, to a judgeship. Right? So it had nothing to do with the decisions that he made or the actions that he had taken. But just because he had friends on the other side of the aisle, I should, I should vote against them. In, in, right? So I would much rather have people at least paying mouse service to the idea of working across the aisle than criticizing for someone for having friends on the other side of the aisle. And I, and I fear that that's a trend that's, that's happening more and more, that you can't even have friends across the other side. Yeah, so I'm going to answer the first two questions, which means I don't have to answer the third question. Uh, no, they don't care. <laughs> right? And, 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 I, and it's not because members of Congress are awful or evil people. Right? Members of Congress hold their job by being reelected. Right? It turns out that one of the easy ways of getting reelected is by criticizing the institution. It turns out the institution never stands for reelection. It's individual members. Right, so there is a famous paper that was published in the 1970s that talks about how Congress is dying from the, from the uh, knives of 435 separate members stabbing it. Right, because it's a compelling campaign commercial to say, that place is so awful and corrupt, it's a swamp, elect me and I can change it. Right? So as long as people have incentives to do that, um, then, then there's no reason why members of Congress should care about the institutional popularity of, of, of Congress. And, and in fact, I even think it gets a little bit worse, right? Part of the idea for this research project came about in, in Texas when Kay Bailey Hutchison had announced her retirement, right? So Kay Bailey Hutchison was a Republican, knew how to work across the aisle. Her, one of her best friends in the Senate was Dianne Feinstein. They had been a ranking member and chair. They had flip-flopped those positions. In, in the committee deliberations, you wouldn't know who was chair and who was ranking member because they were so uh, in tune with each other. Um, and so when Kay Bailey Hutchison announces her retirement from the Senate, there's a debate to replace her in the Republican primary. And it, it's Ted Cruz and it's David Dewhurst who are in this debate. And, and the debates were just boring to listen to because they agreed on all the policies, right? So they, they had the exact same views on lots of different policies. And finally, one of the uh, moderators was so frustrated with the boringness of the debates, he said, well, so what's the difference between the two of you? And Ted Cruz recognized his moment, and he said, you want to know the difference between the two of us? David Dewhurst is going to go to Washington, D.C. and be part of the establishment. I'm going to go to Washington, D.C. and change it, right? And so Texans elected him, right? The voters elected him on that platform. And what did he do? He went to Washington, D.C. and he changed it, right? Not in a good way, I would say. But they don't he did. Yeah, right. So Ted Cruz, right, it, it has become more of an institutionalist across time. Um, so I think that, I mean, Ted Cruz is trying to find out where he fits in, in the Republican Party today, right? Like John Cornyn clearly has the Republican establishment ground in Texas. Right? Donald Trump comes in and is a Ted Cruz-like character and kind of eclipsed 
Ted Cruz. And so I think today Ted Cruz is like, all right, where, where is my party today? And where is the opening? Right? Ted Cruz has lots of ambition. I mean, I suspect that he'll do something else in the future. Um, and so I think he's just trying to figure out what avenue to pursue, and then he's going to pursue it. Um, so if that means becoming more institutionalist, developing more friendships, so that if he ran again, he could get some endorsements, right? And right, the Republicans for a long time had this, uh, we, political scientists who studied them, thought that they always elected the next person in line. So if you go back to the Republican primaries, right, the next person in line in the Republican Party is, is Ted Cruz. Now, whether or not Mike Pence, because he's vice president, eclipses him or not, we don't know. And so I think Ted Cruz, for the moment at least, is holding his fire a little bit more than he did in the past, and he's waiting to see and figure out where the, the path is for him uh, for, uh, to satisfy his, his ambition. Wayne back. No. Do you have an idea of what, what the genesis of when the Congress gave up its authority to pass laws and yeah. any chance that's ever going to change? No, that's right. So, the, Ray, I wish I, I wish I had an hour and a half to unpack your question because I think it's astute and I think it's right on, right? This idea of the imperial presidency. And boy, we're sure learning the, the problems associated with it just in the transition we've seen from President Obama to President Trump. There are a whole lot of things that President Obama accomplished through his pen. Right, that had he gone through the hard and rigorous and demanding legislative process and cajoled and pushed and twisted arms and, and passed some of these things into law, it wouldn't be nearly as easy for, for President Trump during the Trump administration to get rid of them. Right? Because what it took Barack Obama to do with his signature only requires Donald Trump to do with his signature. But I don't think that, that President Trump has learned those lessons from the Obama team. Right? Like, I think he enjoys the satisfaction of just getting rid of the Obama initiatives without recognizing that when the next presidency, if, if the next president is a Democrat, or whenever the next Democrat is elected, it is only going to require that Democrat's signature to get rid of a lot of things that, that President Trump is trying to do. And part of it, you're right, is that Congress has abdicated its responsibility. Right? If, if we go back to the original William White quote, if you think of yourself as first being a member of the House or a member of the Senate before you're a member of a political party, you would act a whole lot differently. Um, but members no longer have those orientations, and part of the reason they don't is because of the way in which the American public has sorted itself. Right? It's, it's far less likely these days that we'll split our ballot between the presidential level, the House, Senate, and the House level. Right? Split ticket voting is going to decline. As that declines and the incumbency advantage declines, then members realize that the only way they can maintain their position is by making sure that the presidential candidate of their party wins. And so right, all the incentives are in all the wrong directions for them to exercise their independent judgment. I see a two-finger question. Yeah. Uh, sure. I mean, so it's really hard to unpack where ideology comes down on this, right? Like, it certainly has to do with the number of liberals and the number of conservatives on the, on the far end. As those increase, there's less people in the middle to work, but there's still people in today's Senate to work, and presidents just aren't choosing that as, as an option because they can accomplish 80% of it with the signature. I saw him. Yep. Yeah, that's a good question, right? So first, I, I want to get measures for the social fabric thing before I start explaining who has more of it than less of it. 
The only insight that I can provide is, right, I, so I saw Dr. Dance earlier with the Gingrich senators. Maybe this is a plug for my book. Of course it's a plug for my book. <laughs> so I really expected that Gingrich senators, as soon as they moved to the Senate, would become more institutional in their orientations. But what I show in the book is they come with such great frequency uh, that they eventually start transforming the institution. So the longer they're there, the more distinct they become from other Republicans who are serving in the institution because it's a strategy that succeeded upon itself. Right? So they see early senators having success by being bomb throwers. They see them getting reelected. They see them being on the Sunday morning talk shows. And they recognize that this is a strategy that plays to their strengths. And so more of them adopt that strategy rather than the old Thad Cochran strategy of getting along with the co-chair or the, the ranking member of his committee um, than, than, than throwing bombs. Yeah, so the power that can do that is you, right? The senators can't change the institution when none of the incentives are in it for them to change the institution. The only thing that, that can change the institution is us demanding them to care, right? And I'm not so naive to, to try to convince Democrats to start voting for Republicans or Republicans to start voting for Democrats, but we have the power in the primaries, right? When we hear someone say, I don't care about the institution, I'm going to go there and, and right now we want them to change it. But we want to hear, I want to hear how someone's going to solve problems. And if they can't indicate how they're going to solve a problem, I don't care if they have the best policy positions in the world, right? If they can't convince other people to go along with them, then I don't think that we should be electing them. So, right, the, the most devastating thing that maybe I've heard coming out of, of, of senators' mouths uh, this past year is in the Democratic debate, I think it was debate number two, where the moderator said, suppose that you're elected president, uh, and suppose that Mitch McConnell is still the majority leader. What are you going to do to make sure that your things right, your, your, all your great ideas are implemented into law? And the various answers that I heard out of the senator's stage that night horrified me. Right? From Bernie Sanders to having a revolution to Kamala Harris saying, I don't care about the Senate, I'm just going to act unilaterally. Right? These are people who are serving in the institution. Right? It just devastated me that, that they have so little institutional loyalty that their way of dealing with the institution is ignoring the institution. And I just don't think we should be voting for people. And, right, now, they're running for president, right? a different role than being a senator. But if we ever heard a Senate candidate talking like that, I hope we wouldn't vote for them, even if we agreed with every policy that they, that, that, that they espouse. Uh-oh, and here's the danger, right? So this is one of my former students from the University of Texas who now lives here in Richmond and came to the talk. Thank you, Audra. And you especially hear, like in, in a state like Kansas, from a Democratic candidate right. who recognizes that she's never going to win if she talks about right, policy view, right, but rather problem solve. Right? It's the exact same campaign that happened in Kentucky. Right? I mean, Bashar is going to have to say that to get elected. Bevin doesn't need to say it. I mean, it so happens that he had other flaws that, that ended up uh, hurting him in, in the end. But it's always, right, it's always those people uh, being elected in, in states, not that we would think, right? that, that they're the ones that have the propensity to say that. 
but you're right. Like if I nail it in the Senate and if I get these measures of social fabric, I'm happy to have them adopted at the gubernatorial level. <laughs> I see Dan standing up. I feel like he has a hook that's ready to drag me off stage. <laughs> Thank you. Okay.